Welcome to the WNCA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. WNCA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. Uh, I often tell people that if you take essentially information warfare, political warfare, lawfare, marketing, and social sciences and blend it all up, you, you're, you're scratching up. Today, we welcome back retired Colonel Robert Curris for the second half of his discussion on the opinion piece, The Army Needs to Invest in Psychological Operations and Not Cut Them. If you have not heard the first half, I recommend checking it out. But either way, let's get on with the show. We've talked about the culture inside of PSYOP and the training that we think PSYOP needs and how we grow that force and grow that capability. I would like to point out, going back to part of what the start of this conversation was with the battalions moving up under SF, it will, in fact, you know, help with uh, our soft integration. I have no doubt about that. And there will be a unity of command. My problem with it goes back to the, as you do that, you know, our, you will lose in, in the RAND study from about five or six years ago that, that talked about this exact example of our soft integration. That's where this came from. Uh, in that RAND study, it, it directly said this will improve integration, but it will disrupt, you know, co- the culture of the branch and also the proficiencies of the branch. Because at that point, you know, you've got the highest ranking guy you have is lieutenant colonel trying to determine everything that he needs to train his forces on. And right. at that point, he's being evaluated by a soldier, special forces officer who may not agree with that right. and that you could lose uh, some core capabilities in, in the process of this integration and certainly your branch identity. And I think that is not worth the integration here because uh, there, there's been a lot of, a lot made of the lack of our operational integrity uh over the the past few years, but I don't think any of it uh, rises to the surface of essentially destroying potentially two branches and being psyop and civil affairs. Right. And I've got, you know, some friends who are also retired peers of mine. And and sometimes they like to say, if they want the people, they should take the mission because they will quickly find out the mission is not as easy as people think, because we do have to deal with a separate set of authorities that isn't just in a basic operations order or an execution order. Right. We have to really navigate uh, separate approval processes, which can be a little bit arduous. And but, incre- you know, yeah, incredibly complex yeah, approval and, process. And so at that point, if you're putting all that on a, on a special forces colonel, <laughs> who's also trying to you know, manage four battalions, four or five battalions worth of his own people. Right. You know, now you're talking six to seven battalions, depending if they keep the, the support battalion in the group. So at that point, you're talking seven battalions. And, you know, even if they're the best one, you know, the smartest guy, the right guy at the right place, that's a, lo- a scope of management. And especially when you start getting into 
you know, the other MOS's capabilities that must be trained that he may not even realize. I, I commanded our, our third side battalion, which had just as many uh, public affairs and signaliers and other MOS's as it did cyphers. And Sounds I like quickly, a bag of cats, man. I bet that was something it, it was, else. <laughs> it was. I, I, I think I had something like uh, 26 or 27 different MOSs wow. uh, inside my battalion in, in, in fairly. Was that kind of a, an old version of information warfare? Is that what they were trying to do? Well, no, it was, it was meant to be global support to all the regional battalions because it provided uh, the radio broadcast platforms, the TV broadcast platforms, the editing suites, the uh, um, you know print media, all of it. You know, uh, uh, Im image capture and video capture, and, and all the stuff that supports the making and creating of a SIOP product. Sure, uh, mostly came from outside of SIOP, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah. So you had. Um, 25 mics and victors and, and a lot of those MOSs no longer exist because they've consolidated over time but um, but so a lot of signal a lot of PA we actually had actual PAO billets to help us with uh, writing copy and, sure. and things like that and uh, so but it makes sense because public affairs creates a lot of great content that, it does you know, and it's and it's verifiable it's got sources so it makes it easier for a psyoper to take that and send it out to channels that PA doesn't have in order to forward the mission. It's great. Yeah, 100%. And, and, but what you quickly learn as a leader of that organization is that you were constantly reaching out to either the signal schoolhouse or uh, uh, to DIMPOs, the, uh, the DOD's information school in Maryland, were quintessential into letting me know the, the, the jobs and the tasks and, and the things that I needed to keep my people trained on so that when they went back to their core MOS, they were still competitive for promotion. They were still competitive in terms of core skill sets that, that they, you know, were able to keep up with a peer that wasn't with us, right? right. That was still in their, in, their, in their main branch. And so just that one example is a microcosm with, I forget how many people I had. I think it was like a, almost a 700-man battalion at the time. But trying to, to keep up with that many branches to go, okay, how do we use their skill set to our advantage, but not destroy them in the process? Right. Keep them competitive, keep them, you know, engaged with the, with their home branches and their home schools, keep them up to date on the training that they needed to be competitive with their peer sets uh, in, 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 their, in their normal units. And if you didn't take the time to do that, you could easily burn people. Left sure. and right, you know, sure. and, and, and they wouldn't be making the higher, you know, NCO grades or, or even, you know, the officers. Uh, uh, so, for instance, signal officers were, were one case where I had platoon leader slots for them, but there wasn't really anywhere for them to go into a captain's billet unless oh, wow. it was just a, a normal S6 position, like a normal uh, signal uh, position on the, on the battalion headquarters staff. So, so working with other soft units who had captain's level billets so that we could say, okay, this, this officer's coming up on a time where I, I really need to transition him or her to, to, to this next job to keep them competitive in the signal branch. Right. You know, those kind of conversations have to happen. I am concerned that as we push out an entire battalion, 
you know, and in your case, civil affairs doing the same thing at the same time and expanding the, the span of control of a, of another 06, you know, guy, regardless of branch, but just in 06 period, you know, you're giving them seven battalions. It's just a lot to manage. And, uh, and I'm not for sure that they will take the time that is required to ensure that they're up to date on what's the latest SIAP doctrine. What are the, the things we're competing with? You know, what are we, what are what is their responsibility to make sure in terms of time or training and management or dollars or our facilities um, that we have to be able to go and do and right. it, it's just a lot and, and it would be a lot for any 06 you know it sounds like i'm bagging on sf there but I, i'm really just saying you're asking for a lot by doing this guys that's what yeah. you're saying <laughs> yeah i i just say and, and, and i think it's bad for everybody i think i think the level of integration that you get at the at truly the tactical level isn't worth the the risk that you're creating right. and, and and another example would be you know when we deploy our teams and especially our teams who are doing military sport public diplomacy they go work in embassies etc and right. they are under the purview of the Theater Special Operations Command. And so when, you know, anytime an SF group deploys, they're under the TSOC as well mm -hmm. kind of thing. But they have their own mission and their own focus. Yeah. You know, we might we might have 20 nodes in a, in a, in a combatant command region out there. And, you know, maybe two-thirds of them will be co-located co with a special forces unit. Uh, but most of them aren't or, or portions of them aren't. And they're working through the public diplomacy office in an embassy or, you know, right. other, other type things are working directly with a unit potentially. And, and so that is what we had always sort of referred to as, you know, the theater strategic reach. That's what we, when, when people were talking about gray zones and especially in countries that were on the bubble in terms of conflict or different things. Right. It was, you know, DOD personnel working out of an embassy to shore up uh, different portions of, of that, team of that country team uh kind of thing you know there's a potential that a lot of that goes away and and that will become a problem well there's because already been a struggle with psyop and being in embassies the the numbers of psyops working public diplomacy has shrunk in years recent years hasn't it it has but but it has be, because going going back to the mutual respect most of the right. special forces leadership has not valued that mission because it potentially took bodies off the table that could be on a next tactical rotation or next CJTF uh, com combined joint task force headquarters. Rotation. So do we need to use more reservists in those positions then? Because I know state department values having those folks there. I, I, I think we, uh, I don't think I know we have successfully done that twice that I'm aware of. I think that that would, it's one of those things where, they would inherit a particular mission and then they would just continue to rotate on that one mission because right. as you're aware in the reserve force, it, it it's hard to generate the power. So it would have to be one of those things where uh, the command would say, okay, uh, we, we, we did this with a, a Naval headquarters that I won't mention completely by name, but there was a Naval headquarters that required us uh, a site team and they got too much for active duty site to fill it. The reserves took it on as a rotation, and yeah. they still own it to this day, I, I believe. And um, and they did a great job because at that point, anything that was deficient in their original training could be made up for in the pre-mission training. Right. 
you know, because that, those positions are mostly planners. So, you know, they would go to the short planning uh, courses and, and get qualified to be able to do that that level of planning. And and I think they did a great job, at least during the time period that, that I commanded uh, a task force and, and worked with them. I, I thought they did a great job. Yeah, the, usually when I saw missed teams, military information support teams at the embassy, they were working grant programs where the local nationals were doing the actual outreach and messaging to the population. And then they were just making sure they got paid and that they were staying on the focus on the goal. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 that one really does vary by country. I mean, we've had, uh, and it really comes down to, uh, how risk averse, uh, or not a, an ambassador is and what they want to do. Uh, at the low end, we've had ambassadors who only wanted us to do community outreach, which, frankly, would have fallen more into your category of work in civil affairs. And then we've had other ones that were, especially when there was a lot of counterterrorism dollars were in, and they were in countries that had issues, they were all about us getting after some more hardcore, uh, you know, influence capabilities. And, right. And, and we were happy to do that. And because that's, that's really where we find our niche. And that goes back to to your comment back when we were talking recruiting about what we can and can't talk about. I mean, we have some great uh, examples that are all at the tactical level that we talk about quite often uh, mm-hmm. of our successes. But some of our higher end stuff where we might have used cutouts or there might have been you know special orders where we, we use different pots of money and, and different things like that, which was all legal. I mean, you had to get it all approved. Right. Um, uh, but a lot of that is still not stuff that we can really, you know, give the, the concrete example of. We can talk about it in the ether space, but they're not really give examples. But uh, it, it makes it difficult. And, right. and everybody has their own version of what they think we are or ought to be. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've hit 45 minutes, and I'd like to get your opinion on what what do you think PSYOPs should do? What's the next steps for both the active duty and the reserve side? Because you know, as special forces has brought the PSYOP groups under the battalions, the use um, of KPOC has brought the, the POGs underneath the civil affairs commands, which is good and bad, in my opinion. It's good because it gives the um, POGs a larger, a larger support base, and it gives them a public affairs officer so that they can speak to the public. But the bad is, is they're not independent and they you know, are going to have to struggle with the same issues that the, the active duty folks are going to have. Right. So th- this is the part where I normally get a little bit controversial and say, I truly believe that there should be uh, something akin to, to the Joint Special Operations Command for information. I, I believe there should be a Joint Information Command, or which would include influence and SOP specifically. And, and I think that's really where SIAP belongs. Uh, I think if we're going to ever be allowed, and I use that word specifically, if we're ever going to be allowed to go beyond tactical or even maybe theater strategic, maybe, mm-hmm. um, that, that it can't be under use of SOC in the, in the form it is now. It, 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 we need to move up to joint and in so doing, uh, reform what used to be, the, and I mentioned it earlier, the MESOC, the Military Information Support Command, mm-hmm. I would probably change the name back to the SIAP Command at this point, um, and bring all those units back together. And, and it's kind of akin to people 
didn't learn their lesson when they got rid of Devardis and pushed out all the artillery battalions to the infantry brigades. Right. And having been a former former fire support uh, officer and, and having done that, you know, and I was a prior enlisted 11 Bravo in the, in the National Guard. So, like, I understood the infantry mentality, I understood the artillery mentality, but at the end of the day, we were never going to have the same training benefits as we would consolidated at, at the uh, battalion and Devardi level. And ironically, they brought the Devardi back because they were like, <laughs> hey, you know, uh, this isn't working. The idea of, of using the Devardi headquarters, Division Artillery headquarters, as, as only a fire support coordination headquarters was great. But you saw an atrophy of the core, the core skill sets of the artillerymen. And this is going to be the exact same way. Okay. They're getting rid of the one PSYOP group, getting rid of it completely, and then they're going to say that they're going to use the other group as, as a Devardi-like headquarters to do personnel management and that kind of thing. But, you know, as an experiment, this has already failed once. Yeah. Well, that takes two groups out. Yeah. Because well, if you dissolve one and use the other one for admin, you've taken out two groups. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, the, uh, and on top of that, when you look at one of the biggest points internal to the PSYOP community was always the, the training deficit between the reserves and the active duty because they had so many training days and training dollars and they were not allowed to do our full, you know, essentially nine-month course right. because they, they could only go so, so far. And But that could be made up to a degree with station training if it was controlled in a controlled manner, right? You, you, could, you could get them caught up. And it's not to say that they're not good cybers because there's some phenomenal cybers on the reserve side that I've worked with, a, you know, a million times and I do it all again tomorrow. But when you talk about the formal training so that you have the ability to justify why you are as a, as a unit or as a branch doing something or not doing something, right. you know, it often comes back to those core tasks, which are the training piece. So I, I still contend that if we were consolidated as a force, both reserve and active duty, uh, you could always delineate some of the mission sets based on on the training piece, uh, and you could overcome some of the some of what I think have been bad decisions for our branch from other because they were made by people from other branches um, by putting it in a joint environment where where it forces everybody to sort of go okay you know if we're bringing everybody in because the Marine Corps has a very successful SAP organization right now they actually. Uh, deleted a tank battalion in order to create their site force, and they oh, go wow. through our schoolhouse. So they, you know, they made a decision as a force to get rid of some pointy end of the spear guys in order to create influence guys. And they go through our schoolhouse. They have instructors at our schoolhouse. You know, it's not labeled as such, but we truly have a joint training environment there between us and the Marine Corps. And and the Navy has uh, sent multiple people through our training as well as they've started to expand back their influence capabilities uh that's less formal at this point and then uh as i think you probably know the air force stood up what i think is called the 16th squadron or wing um which is you know has their social scientists and, and, and their version of SIOP in there as well or influence and if we got all of that together in in an organization that was responsive to the nation the same way that the JSOC is uh, Joint Special Operations Command, we could do so much more. Yeah, and 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 not only do so much more, 
but not lose the skill sets to provide that tactical support that the Marine Corps and Special Forces and the regular Army desperately needs. Right. It sounds like other branches or other services are taking um, information more seriously. Oh, there's been a huge investment, huge investment everywhere but our hmm. And And, uh, you know, like I said, the Marine Corps cut a tank battalion. The Navy stood up a wing, or not the Navy, the Air Force did. The Navy started to expand their programs. You know, and all that was going on at the exact same time that they were standing up Cyber Command mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what they were going to do with, with the Information Operations Force, which they right. still haven't completely figured out, and, and the Electronic Warfare Force. I mean, the, if there was ever a group of people that ought to be working together at a national level, it's all of that. Right. But you can't do that if you're working for a colonel. <laughs> you just don't have the punch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, so when, when I was a group commander, you know, ninety percent of, of my my of the SF group commanders, you know, it, it, we had very professional relationships, made some great friends during that time period. You know, there's always an overlap for who's in their first year, second year, and all that kind of stuff, and some hugely capable human beings, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're still a colonel, and right. they can only take, take things so far, and especially if they deploy, they're most likely deploying on a tactical mission set and not regional. And then when you look at the people in the how the Army runs processes, we haven't had a, an active duty general officer in a position to make just good decisions for our branch in 50 years. and. Right. And we've suffered because of it. And I'm not just a lot of people ding us on that because they're like, y'all, you're just crying because you don't have a guy with a star, guy or gal. And I'm like, it's not just the star. It's the level of influence. It's it's the level of influence. And it's having and frankly, and it reverses, it's having somebody on the blame line. Mm-hmm. If, if 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 our forces in the special warfare center in school are not training psyopers to be good psyopers. You know, there should be a side general that's at fault and should be held accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, the same thing is true for the operational force. If we're if we're not mission ready, if we don't have our guys and gals ready to go out the door and do their mission right and do a good job at it, there should be a side general that's held accountable for that lack of, you know, capability. And right now, we've had a lot of lack of training capability. We've had a lot of operational lack of operational capability. But no one's holding the special forces general officers accountable for that, even though they were the ones making the decisions. Yeah. Right. And, and so it, it gets frustrating because I go back to a colonel can only do so much. So when we still had commandants and I was the last site commandant when we had them, even as the commandant, I could only push things so far as a colonel. And without the general officers, you know, essentially going, okay, Bob, we'll do that. Right. Uh, but if it was in any way counter to what they wanted to do, it didn't happen. But at that point, was it my fault that it didn't happen or his fault? Right. Now, at the strategic national level, does PSYOP have a alum force that lobbies for them? No, not not. not have they the considered building a civilian alumni that lobbies for them? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you're talking to it, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, 
so so when you're when the army of one the, i remember that it, ad yeah congratulations See, I, took, <laughs> I took the commercial seriously um but, but honestly what it came down to there's so much of, of our alumni force that are still working for the government sure that when the initial rumblings of these decisions of of potentially dissolving 8th Group and the 9th Battalion headquarters and 3rd Battalion, as well as moving the regional battalions underneath the SF groups, was all coming out. There was no one else really in a position to be able to talk about it publicly and not put themselves in jeopardy. And so... Um, but there's got to be PSYOPers that are out there that are no longer working for the government, um, you know, but are involved in the Beltway or other other areas of value, like in the corporate world, that could lend a hand or a voice to supporting the PSYOP cause. It just it just has not organized yet. Correct. And and, and I agree with you. I, I tell you what's interesting. And, and so this this is where, you know, once again, the special forces do a great job of this. The special forces association. For themselves. People, yeah. They, they, they have a, a great job of, of beating the hallways in Congress and having oh, yeah. people lobby on for, for their and everything else. And so I, I applaud them as, you know, it, I, I would love to have that capability so that we could fight some of this back. But right. at this point, you know, it really does take me reaching out to people to call the congressman to even have the congressman ask harder questions than beyond the press releases. Right. Because the press releases always sound great. I mean, that's what public affairs does. I mean, they do a great job. <laughs> and, and so, so, Would you like uh, some more Kool-Aid with that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because like, so I think it was like on the 9th of November, General, General Ferguson released a, an email talking about the move of the civil affairs and in, in, uh, site battalions or any DSF groups. And, and he was talking about, well, you know, in my 20 years associated with this command, you know, we, we've lacked the integration and this is going to improve the integration and all that stuff. And I'm reading this going, yes, it will improve integration at the tactical level only. It, it actually goes, even though they got the idea for this from the RAND study, the RAND study itself gave some pretty dire warnings about the consequences of this. Right. But if you just read the email as a public release, you're like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Why wouldn't you do this? Why didn't we do this 30 years ago? Right. And, and it's because they're good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And so being able to find our alumni force or other, you know, congressmen or other people who are in a position to say, okay, this force is actually listed by name in the National uh, Security Council and in the National Defense Authorization Act. Right. And so if you're going to make major changes, you know, you should be briefing us on what the impact of these changes are going to be to their ability to achieve the missions that we've given them in, in these public documents. Right. And and we don't have anybody asking that question. So if if you're a reporter or a congressman or anybody else and, and you got a copy of that email, You'd be like, oh, yeah, makes sense. Okay, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. We're going to become more because, efficient. Yeah, because nobody knows how to ask the, the second and third order question of, well, what's the impact of this? And, and, right. and is there a detriment to our national security as a result, which, which I believe that there is? I don't think we can achieve all the missions assigned to us in the NDAA once we make these moves. But, you know, that's just me. Okay. Well, I'm going to cut it there. We have hit a solid hour of conversation and I've got to run. But I think that this is going to be a really easy episode to cut and put together. Cool. We'll go from there, but I enjoy the conversation, Jack. I really did. Yeah, I always, I always have a good time talking to you. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. 
Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.